Have you ever seen a wind farm? Not just one of those windmills on the mini golf course. I'm talking about the acres of free space with dozens of turbines taller than the Statue of Liberty just spinning around. Wind farms are pretty awesome. Sounds like one of the most eco-friendly ways to generate energy. It's not like the wind's going anywhere. Or I guess it has to go somewhere in order for this to work. You, you, you get what I mean. We're able to produce gigawatts of energy off the airflow through the atmosphere. That's got to be one of the proudest triumphs of engineering. But what's shocking is that despite our best technology, despite our best efforts at making these turbines more efficient, most of our wind farms are operating at between 30 and 40% efficiency. Yeah, that low. With all the advancements in technology over the past few decades, you wouldn't expect this to be a big obstacle for us. I mean, humans have been harnessing the wind since we put sails on boats, and even windmills have existed for millennia. Climate change is happening right now, and we need to start emphasizing renewable energy. Wouldn't it be great if we could get ourselves up to 100% efficiency at these wind farms? Well, as usual, the answer might surprise you. Get ready to mess with the madness. <laughs> Welcome back to Plato. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you that follow me on Instagram, I put up a poll a couple weeks ago to decide which topic I was going to tackle next in our arc on addressing societal issues, politics or art. I'll be honest, I was kind of surprised that so many of you wanted to hear more about politics given how overly politicized everything has been over quarantine, but I guess that's why we're here, to challenge it. Politics is pretty broad, so you might be wondering, where are we going to start? What's left the challenge about politics? We already know it's super corrupt and pretty much run by corporate interest. And maybe the most pressing question, what does this have to do with windmills? Bear with me, I promise this will make sense. In the year 1919, while everyone else was struggling to figure out how to write the date without being redundant, a German physicist named Albert Betz was addressing this problem of efficiency. Why was it that their modern technology couldn't seem to catch up to that elusive 100% mark? Edison said it was 99% sweat, but global warming wasn't really going to ramp up for another few decades, so they needed a better answer. Betts noticed something about wind power that at first seems pretty obvious. In order for the wind to produce power through some mechanical device, it has to flow. Well, duh. But think about what that means from an efficiency standpoint. If the air is flowing through the device, then no matter what sort of device it is, it can't remove 100% of the energy from the wind, even in theory, otherwise the air would just stop moving. Using conservation of momentum and mass of the airstream, Betts proved that the theoretical ideal efficiency for any mechanical device converting wind energy to electricity, even when there's no friction and all your cows are spherical and all that, is 59.3%. Anything above that, and the blades of the wind turbine would get caught in turbulent flow and break. That's demoralizing. It's kind of like saying that the highest grade possible in a class is just barely a D minus. I mean, who would take that rotten deal? But Betz's proof wasn't really a drag on engineers. It showed us that we weren't too far off from the maximum energy yield of the wind. Betz took a common ideal, 100% efficiency, and challenged it in a big way. He was like Plato 1.0, or maybe Plato 0.593. Anyway, the bigger point here is that taking 100% might not always be the ideal situation. So what does that have to do with democracy? It's majority rule. We don't expect 100% in politics today, right? Well, it might be a little bit more subtle than that. And to get a good look at it, we're going to start, of course, with linguistics. The word democracy comes from the Greek roots demos, meaning common people, and kratos, or rule, which originated in Sanskrit kratu, meaning wisdom.
Most people translate this as a form of government in which the common people elect officials and directly influence policy through census voting and majority rule. Nice and neat. But there's a little bit of history behind that first route. In ancient Attica, home of capital city Athens, the word demos didn't just mean the common people, it meant district. You see, Attica housed a bunch of different tribes, each with their own customs and traditions. Though the city-state was able to standardize some stuff, they obviously couldn't close the iron fist, so they created 10 different regions within the land, each populated with a different tribe with their own separate gate into Athens. These gates were originally referred to as demos, but really demos was a way to distinguish between the 10 different districts and tribes. So democracy might be better translated as rule of the districts or rule of the tribes, where each district operated somewhat autonomously in its own region. This is going to be super important later, so keep that in mind. The word politics stems from the Greek root polis, meaning city, citizens, or community, depending on the context. Those translations have their own nuances, but thankfully this one is a lot less convoluted than democracy. The Proto-Indo-European root pele means citadel, or enclosed space on high ground. Politics is simply referring to the affairs of a group of people living together within an autonomous community. So where does the 100% show up? Well, politics is about the people. And so the ideal situation that most scholars would support is one where every citizen gets a say in what happens. If they win, cool. If they lose, they can freely choose to leave. And if they don't care, they don't have to vote. Pretty easy rules, and it's easy to see how that translates into the democracy we know today. Everyone can vote, with some exceptions. You're free to leave, with some exceptions. And if you don't care, you don't have to vote. No exceptions to that one, funny enough. But in practice, not all our political decisions are made democratically within our society. We run a representative democracy, which means we elect other people to push our agenda on our behalf in the government. Besides the admittedly boring yearly census, our voting power is limited to choosing between candidates to represent us instead of having us vote on each issue. And that suits us just fine, because who has time to care about all the things that Congress deals with on the daily? Imagine having to form an opinion on every single proposed bill, every tax plan adjustment and budget shift, every single crisis that's brought before the congressional stage. On top of school or your job, that would be impossible because it would leave very little time for authentic American Netflix binging. Representative democracy gets around that with a proxy service. Instead of each of us directly voting on everything, we can just elect people to vote for us. Sure, there's a trade-off. Now instead of 100% of ideas being represented, you get maybe 10% or 5%. But those are the cream of the crop, the people who study law and politics and have really thought everything through, right? If you're a big business boss, you're probably laughing out loud. And also, thanks for listening. Please sponsor me with your capitalist treasure. Even though you've probably heard about this at some point, it's worth looking into just how much business interests affect policy decisions, from the insidious oil industry that drove us into the Gulf War, to the healthcare companies and PR like Wendell Potter, who admitted to cherry-picking Canadian data to make it seem like universal healthcare leads to long wait times, or big pharma CEOs like John Kapoor, Founder of Insys, who created a network of bribes and kickbacks to physicians in return for overprescribing a fentanyl spray that contributed to the opioid addiction epidemic. And the list goes on. The point is, that top 5-10% to of ideas is probably sitting in the pocket of the top 0.5% income bracket. A representative democracy in capitalist society leaves a whole lot of room for coercion and corruption. But even if it didn't, even if the representatives we elected were somehow totally clean, is the election process itself a fair system? Definitely not in the presidential election. The founding fathers had very little faith in the wisdom of their mostly illiterate population, which was probably for the better. 
So they created the Electoral College and allowed those representatives to act independently, even voting against their state's choice if they had to. But it goes the other way too. Thanks to a recent Supreme Court decision, states can force all their Electoral College representatives to vote for the popular chosen candidate from their state. That means that if Georgia had a 51-49 split, it could essentially disenfranchise those 49% of voters by forcing all of its representatives to vote for the majority candidate. They're basically rounding off our votes to the nearest presidential candidate. The national picture for the election might not actually reflect what happens in the popular vote thanks to this rounding principle in 48 states, which is why Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election even though she won the popular vote. Okay, so the presidential election is pretty messed up. But how about all our other elected officials, especially representatives to Congress or to state legislatures? That's where the laws get made and passed, after all. Well, it turns out things aren't so great there either. One of the most dramatic statements in social choice theory is called Arrow's Impossibility Theorem, and it sets up the following situation. Let's say you want to have a fair election with more than two candidates available to the public, since choosing between two candidates often means choosing the lesser of two evils. Let's also define two more basic outcome conditions of a fair election that we expect to have. The first is called Pareto efficiency, which is the fancy way of saying that if everyone prefers Clinton over Trump, then the outcome should rank Clinton over Trump. Pretty clear. The second is called independence of irrelevant alternatives, which means that if Clinton is ranked over Trump and Bernie decides to drop out of the race, or some new candidate, Kanye, decides to join the race, that shouldn't change the fact that Clinton is ranked over Trump. Sure, Kanye can go in between Clinton and Trump, but that shouldn't change the relative ordering of Clinton and Trump. That should just depend on how people feel about those two candidates, not anybody else who's running. So far, so good. Where does the impossibility come in? Nobel Prize winning economist Kenneth Arrow proved mathematically that just this set of conditions, even though they all seem perfectly fair and democratic, results in a dictatorship. Not a dictator as a leader, but dictatorship in the voters. If all three of our conditions hold true, then there will be a single voter in the population whose vote will be the ultimate linchpin. Her vote will make or break the result, and if she changes her vote, she changes the result. She has complete control over the outcome of the election. If that sounds pretty extreme to you, then it might be worth taking a lesson from last episode and going through the actual theory. In the Proof of Arrows theorem, one of the assumptions is that we can make everybody else's votes essentially random, because that way we can figure out whether she actually has influence over a totally random election. Obviously, people don't just vote randomly, there is definitely going to be some sort of bias toward a few candidates, like the ones sponsored by political parties. But that still doesn't help, because any candidates or parties outside of the mainstream have that same power over the election. Not a dictatorship, but still a pretty tight set of people controlling the outcome. So how do we get out of this dictator control over the voting population? Well, we made some assumptions going in, so we're going to have to unmake at least one of them in order to get out. The first was that we have at least three candidates, but again, having just two candidates isn't a really good representation of the population. So if possible, we should keep that. The second was Pareto efficiency. If we get rid of that, then if everybody prefers Joe Biden over Kanye West, every single voter, Kanye still has a chance to win. So that's got to stay. Our only option left is to allow dependence on irrelevant alternatives. So even though Kanye isn't going to win, by dropping out or rejoining the race, he can flip the relative ranking between Biden and Trump. I think Kanye himself probably said it best here. No one man should have all that power. This dependency works in favor of majority rule, but majority rule is coercive against the minorities whose voices are overridden. 
the ranked choice voting system doesn't work out so well when there are two strong candidates who split the majority of the votes almost evenly, and that's exactly the case we have today. Winner-take-all disenfranchises large portions of the population in the same way. Within each blue or red state, even the ones that haven't changed in a while, the voters are split a lot closer than the media makes it seem. In New Jersey, for example, Clinton won 55.5% of votes, while Trump took 41.35%. But all 14 of Jersey's electoral votes went to Clinton. If the Electoral College didn't exist, the outcome would have been a lot closer and could have triggered a recount. The more you look at it, the worse it gets. They always tell us that the vote is our most powerful tool in democracy. But when we trust the vote, we're basically outsourcing our vision for the future to other people. All the election systems are rigged. They only represent a small portion of the population and disenfranchise a majority. On a sailboat, the rigging is what holds the masts in place. It's the framework that keeps the ship together. Our political system and electoral process are rigged, but that rigging is what holds democracy together, so the only way to unrig the system is to walk the plank. Representative democracy clearly has its flaws. So what about true democracy? Would we live in a better world if we bypassed Congress and just took census polls for every decision we had to make? Can you even imagine what that would look like? If we had to vote on every single issue ourselves, we would have to be educated on everything the country is doing. We'd have to know enough about history and science and economics to make informed decisions, or else we'd just be sitting it out on the sidelines anyway and the elites would rule the country. Plus, Arrow's theorem isn't just true for electing people. The candidates could just as easily be options for political action. Some people say defund the police, others want to increase the funding, and suddenly we find ourselves in the same mess all over again. The small outlier groups have the ability to change the outcome by entering or withdrawing their positions. A wise man once said to me, it's easier to sell painkillers than vitamins. What he meant was that most people actively want to alleviate their pain points, even though painkillers don't actually get rid of the thing causing the pain. Vitamins, on the other hand, will probably help prevent you from feeling a lot worse pain down the road, but since down the road is outside our experience, we stick with the Advil. The sad truth is, it's hard for us to care about problems we don't face in our daily lives. Populist politicians always claim they'll improve the economy because that's the one large-scale system that we know has an immediate impact. We speak money, so we care about money. But what about those issues that we're less familiar with? Are we all just really a bunch of Karens inside, incapable of expressing empathy for each other? According to Dr. Sean Rosenberg from Stanford, the answer is actually yes. People don't think in a rational way all the time, and we definitely do stuff that isn't for the good of all humanity. But that's because we aren't all of humanity. We're just, you know, us. We can't respond to all of the world's problems, or even just the set of problems America cares about. In his essay, Democracy Devouring Itself, Rosenberg lays out all the unrealistic expectations democracy has of its citizens. They have to be objective thinkers. They need to take due time and consider all the sources of evidence. They need to recognize that countries are bound by shared laws and not shared values. In that case, no president has ever even been a good citizen of democracy. They always talk about American values and freedom to cover up their airstrikes. Last episode, we talked about how selection bias is really hard to see through, so every citizen would need to challenge even the information that's presented to them. And to their credit, some of them try. But this isn't the same as anti-vaxxers and climate change deniers. This is much deeper than that, deeper than any democracy is willing to go. Rosenberg points out that the skills you use to act as a true citizen of democracy are the same skills you use to see and correct your own errors to align better with democracy. So, 
Anybody who doesn't have those skills in the first place feels insecure and left out. Democracy is like the classic schoolyard bully. It singles you out for one mistake and never lets you forget it. And it'll beat you up if you try to stand up for yourself. If democratic citizens are supposed to recognize and accept other cultures and forms of relating to the world, then when we attack other nations to defend democracy, we're actually destroying it. Rosenberg says that the fundamental flaw in democracy is that it's asking for 100% commitment from its citizens, which would force us to stop living our lives to participate in the democratic process. This is Betz's law for politics. Just like how we can't use up 100% of the wind energy blowing through the turbines, democracy can't use up 100% commitment from the citizens. A large-scale democratic-ruled country has way too many problems to deal with, so the public can't possibly be as involved as they need to be in order for it to truly represent the people's voices. It's parasitic. It costs too much. And this feeds into how the political realm is shaped. According to political scientist Thomas Ferguson, since it costs too much for most of us to participate in democracy, we're governed by the people who profit off the status quo. Political parties aren't meant to be the voices of reason, they're meant to adopt positions that allow candidates to attract big money. And those rich investors are already pretty involved with foreign affairs, since most large businesses and banks have to create a solid international network in order to expand. But even those controllers of democracy don't have the full scope. Democracy is an infinite game, a game whose sole purpose is to continue being played. It's like that movie, Truth or Dare. You can never escape the game because it's designed to be played forever. The only way to stop being haunted is to spread it to other people, and that's exactly what our foreign policy has been for the last hundred years. Politics doesn't care about the players, they're just pawns on the board. Its main focus is keeping itself running, because political systems have a built-in survival instinct. There's a great TED talk by Simon Sinek when he points out how this infinite game has affected our decisions. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, President Carter called in his national security advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski and asked him what the U.S. policy would be. Brzezinski said our goal was to, quote, eject the Soviets, and if we can't do that, we'll make it as expensive as possible for them to stay, end quote. So what starts off as a finite, timely goal of getting rid of the Soviets turned into the perpetual and vague strategy of draining their resources, a decade-long nightmare of foreign involvement in Afghanistan. Sinek makes a really interesting point here. We can't play an infinite game with finite players, because new players and new goals will replace the old ones. So what do we do? Do we just give up and say none of it matters since the game is going to play forever anyway? Tempting, but Sinek says there is a way to win. We have to throw away the rules. Following the cookie-cutter instructions for democracy will just keep the cycle going. The best way to combat the craziness of national politics in the US is to stop making it so important in the first place. Humans are really bad at understanding the big picture because we live small lives. For example, the difference between 1 million and 1 billion on paper is a change from M to B, or at worst, just three zeros tacked on at the end. But apply that to something we know. The difference between 1 million seconds and 1 billion seconds is 11 days to 32 years. That's huge. We're not meant to be playing around with trillion dollar budgets and governing millions of people. We can barely wrap our heads around those numbers in the first place. We should put power into the hands of people who control reality for most Americans, the mayors and city council members whose decisions are limited to just their own districts. The hidden truth is that there is no single leader, or even group of leaders, for all 330 million people in the US. 
The federal government governs federal laws and protects only what is established in the Constitution. Ancient city-state civilizations, like Athens, did exactly that. The conquered territories pretty much ruled themselves. They just paid taxes and adopted some cultural rules. It's called democratic republicanism, and we're supposed to be doing it today. But the Roman Empire-style hierarchy we've embedded inside it goes against the goal of governing large territories. Let me explain. When President Trump ordered the National Guard into Portland, he faced a lot of backlash. Not only are the agents acting totally out of line, using technicalities and sometimes even breaking the law to make arrests, but the four-year incumbent Mayor Ted Wheeler, who's been a public official for a full decade, has been overruled on the president's orders. Although he's repeatedly called for the withdrawal of federal troops, Mayor Wheeler doesn't have the authority to subvert what they're doing, or even challenge their shady methods. Liberals will argue that the president is breaching his powers here, but the Insurrection Act of 1807 allows the president to dispatch federal troops to defend federal laws, such as protecting courthouses and other federal property. And it makes sense that federal troops could be called into a state to help enforce order and keep the peace if it gets out of control. But that's the ideal we need to challenge. There shouldn't really ever be a point where the federal government steps in to help by overruling the existing local leaders. The federal government isn't interacting with us on a personal level. It's always local authorities who make the important decisions that affect our day-to-day -day life. We have a false chain of command baked into our decision-making process. The president doesn't make decisions for the American people. He makes them for his administration. A governor doesn't make decisions for her state. She makes them for her mayors and special interest groups with whom she directly interacts. If someone hasn't asked you for your opinion directly, then they're not making a decision on your behalf. They're just using a power structure to subdue your individual voice. But on the other side of the coin, practically none of those decisions they make are that big of a deal in your daily life. War with an oil-rich country? That just means 10 extra bucks when you fill gas. New equal opportunity laws? Probably doesn't affect you if you're against them anyway, since we live in a country segregated by geography. So why should we care about politics? The real game changers are at the local government, making changes to laws that affect you specifically, and they can do that because they can count the number of people they govern. They understand real-world problems and deal out real-world solutions. So we need to help restore the democratic hierarchy of power. In a city or a town, the mayor and council decisions should be the rule of law and should outweigh any national interference unless they directly conflict with federal laws. I'm not saying we should get rid of the national government. We still need basic promises like universal healthcare and our Bill of Rights. But those should form a framework for the local law, not close us off from expanding our liberties. The biggest shift we need to make is to start caring more about our local elections than the presidential election. I know it might seem strange, but your mayor, elected to hold up your community, has a lot more influence on your life than the president, elected to uphold the constitution. Local elections are about reality, not politics. The game we play between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, socialists and libertarians, that game only exists for itself. It's not going to push one way or the other, otherwise the game is over. If we want action, we need to take initiative in our own communities, where our skin is in the game. Pay attention, and money, to your local news reporters. Follow what's going on in your county and state. Figure out what they're teaching kids from your school board, and stay away from the trap of politics, because it's not real. Both sides, all sides, live together in suburbs and cities across America, and they work out fine because they deal with real issues instead of engaging in bitter Twitter feuds about this one side did this and that side did that. In the end, it doesn't matter which political party started it, we have to end it.
by taking away the one thing that a crippled democracy needs to thrive. Not our money, not our votes, but our attention. Keep that focus razor sharp, and we can change this country human to human, one Karen at a time. Thanks for messing with the madness, and I'll catch you next time.